Okay, welcome to episode five of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. We'll be redrafting the 2001 NHL entry draft on this podcast, continuing our series. And I'm really excited to be joined by the Athletics Scott Wheeler, a seasoned redrafter. <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, this. This will not be my first rodeo. We've been doing. I've been doing this project athletic personally for the last few years so this this will be a lot of fun man I'm looking forward to it right on so what do you remember from 2001 I I understand you you were not in the game scouting prospects at this point (laughs) in your life no I mean that's that's my childhood when I when I think back to the year 2001 as it pertains to NHL hockey and and sort of my fandom of NHL hockey at that point I mean, I was just getting getting super into hockey. I, I was born in the early '90s, and um, so so that was kind of that that was my heyday as a fan. Like that was those were the years, man. Um, I, I mean, you obviously had the the sort of middle of the two dynasties in Detroit and New Jersey, and then kind of the end of the dynasty in Colorado. So those were the three teams of the day, and I mean. I grew up sort of loving Pavel Bure. So that was Pavel Bure's heyday. And obviously as a, as a Toronto kid, there's, when I think to 2001, my first thought about that season is ultimately really the, the sweep of the Sens and, and the, the sort of resurrection of the Battle of Ontario. So there, it was, uh, those were formative years for me in a big way. Yeah, a, a bit unfortunate for you to and myself as well to to come up rooting for teams playing in the the mud puck era but mm. ultimately we, we came out the other side and now hockey is i think it's the best that it's ever been i would absolutely agree man it's uh the way that the game is playing now the way that the sort of selection of players is, has finally begun to trend in a different direction at the nhl draft and on the sort of player evaluation side, everything has shifted, I think, in the last five or six years. This will be my seventh year, sort of full year, covering the NHL draft and doing the whole player evaluation side of, of my job. And even in those seven years, things have changed a lot. My process has changed a lot. The way the kids are being selected has changed a lot. And I think it's ultimately been for the better. It's been for the betterment of the game as a whole. It's playing faster. It's playing smarter. There's more skill on the ice. Obviously, scoring, you would like it to probably be a little bit higher than it still is. But we've even seen in the last couple of years a, a little bit of an uptick in scoring after a lull sort of in the, in the late 2010s. So um, it's, it's trend, the game's trending in a great direction, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it any better. So to set the table, 2001, you mentioned the Avalanche. They're coming off their second and final Stanley Cup win. Mm-hmm. We just completed expansion, so into Minnesota and Columbus. They just had their first years in the NHL. So we're up to 30 teams, and this draft is taking place in Sunrise, Florida, where they are accustomed to drafting near the top of the draft at this point. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. We're fresh off of Ray Bork's historic moment, too. Absolutely. I, for, I forgot about that part of 2001 lore, turning all of Massachusetts into Colorado Avalanche fans. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? Uh, so the actual draft order 
and picks that take place, we'll run that down just to kind of ease our way into this redraft. So at number one, the Atlanta Thrashers, they win the draft lottery. So they move up from number three to number one, jumping past the New York Islanders, which is a reversal of what took place in the 2000 NHL entry draft. And Atlanta takes Ilya Kovalchuk. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> you can't really go wrong, can you? It's a, I, I, again, I was pretty young, so I, I wouldn't have been familiar with any of these players coming up. But my, my early memories of Ilya were just that, holy shit, this guy plays a completely different breed of hockey. And he, he was kind of that pure finisher that every team – now covets but they haven't always kind of coveted that kind of player I mean he, if, if I recall correctly he finished his his career dash a, a hundred and something on the plus minus side and he was just a, a kind of different kind of player that I would imagine early on in those days talent aside the talent was one thing but early on he probably drove some coaches crazy and I would imagine if, if he were in the draft today he would have been sort of even more coveted than he was back then and ultimately became a, a sort of sensational player yeah he's probably the best goal scorer of the generation if Alex mm-hmm. Ovechkin doesn't come along a few years later you're not wrong so at number two we have a trade which brings us to my favorite corner of these redraft pods the Mike Milbury channels Joe Bluth I've made a huge mistake corner <laughs> And under new ownership, this is the start of the the Wang Kumar ownership. They decide we've had just about enough of this seven-year run of not making the playoffs and drafting in the lottery every year. So they end up trading Bill McCult, Zdeno Chara, and the number one pick, or sorry, the number two pick to Ottawa for Alexei Yashin and then hand Yashin a 10-year, $87.5 million deal that would look crazy even in today's dollars. Yeah, when I think about that move, it, it, I just think down goes Brown. Like, I think how many times has have some of this sort of comedy writers in the hockey world probably rehashed this move, just shaking their head and sort of looking back at some of the all-time big mistakes at the draft like this was just yeah it, it couldn't have gone worse it couldn't have gone south any faster than it did really mm-hmm. and to be fair to Milbury again ownership for the Islanders in this era is crazy so the fact that he hangs on to the job for a decade and basically mm-hmm. gets to go from plan to plan to plan to plan is really a testament to his ability to sell himself to billionaires Yeah, no question. And the Islanders also, they go on to make the playoffs, I think, five out of the six years that Yashin's with the team. Milbury pulls off some other trades all on this draft weekend. He gets uh, Mike Pekka fresh off his holdout year in Buffalo, trading Tim Connolly and Taylor Pyatt, guys he took in the 99 draft in the top 10. And then he also picks up Adrian O'Coin for a second rounder. And Yashin is still a star. Yep. So you can argue that this trade even works out a little bit for them. 
if it was just the pick, it probably works out. But Chara being light years ahead of anyone else in the 96 draft mm. turn, turns this one into, into a stinker. Yeah, I mean, you, you could have two Hall of Famers going the other way. We'll see what happens with Spezza, but Chara's a Hall of Famer for sure, no? Oh, absolutely, yeah. He should already be in there, even though he's still playing at a high level. Um, one thing from doing some reading around this draft, I, I referenced the 96 draft, which Chara's from, and I've talked about in this series how that draft class is so bad that I'm never redrafting it. <laughs> but they talk about Derek Morris five years out from that draft being considered the best player from that draft class, which mm. you as, as someone who's done a bunch of redrafts, I'm sure you can appreciate how, how much these things can change from year to year. Oh, for sure, man. I mean, the, the redrafts I've done have tended to be the, the sort of more recent classes, but even in recent memory, you look back at 2012 and the, the sort of, Yakupov debacle and, and that draft just as a kind of weaker draft on the whole and the glut of defensemen in that draft and every so often there's one of those classes that just skews in one kind of direction whether that's positionally like 2012 did with all of the defensemen or you end up with a dud of a first overall pick and we like to talk about how scouting scouting has become so refined these days, but some of this stuff is still happening today. You're still seeing some big swings and misses at the top of the draft. You're still seeing Pavel Zacha go sixth overall, and you're still seeing people talk about Michael McLeod as top five pick in his draft year. And so there's still, it's, it's, it's been imperfect and it will remain imperfect. And I think that's one of the things that makes the NHL draft so unique relative to a draft like the NBA's where by and large, you know that the, the sort of top picks are going to pan out, health permitting. So um, it's it's I, I love that about the NHL draft. I love that you have these guys who, I mean, we will remember this sort of the early 2000s. Who was the who was the Canadian kid? His name slipping my mind right now. Who was the Canadian kid who played? missed Canada at the World Juniors one year, came back the next year as a 16. Like, he tried to make Team Canada as a 15-year-old. Um, came back as a 16-year-old, and a 17-year-old was supposed to be a first overall pick and fell flat. I'm thinking mid-sort of 2000s. That's not Sean Day, is it? No. No, 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 no. Played in the queue. Oh, this this completely eludes me. Uh, it'll <laughs> It'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still happening and, and it's, it's funny how things kind of play out over the years. No kidding. You know, you, you've teased the idea of some draft busts. We're, we're getting to one here at number three, the Tampa Bay lightning take Alexander mm -hmm. Svitov. And I had Russ Cohen on the pod earlier this week and he mentioned that Ultimately, Svitov just couldn't really play. But I want to talk about Svitov's career getting railroaded basically from the start. Because he's he becomes the youngest player to make the Russian Super League. And he's mm. playing for his hometown team at 17. And he's a man-child surviving in that league. And then he gets drafted number three overall. And Rick Dudley... The, the Lightning GM at the time thinks he's the most complete player in the draft and <laughs> figures he's, 
he's the most NHL ready out of any of these guys. But back in those days, the relations between the NHL and the Russian Federation are quite poor. So they sign Svitov that summer, but they don't let anyone know about it. And then with all the top picks from this draft from Russia, they order them back to Russia and then tell them that they all still owe military service or they'll be deemed AWOL. (laughs) So Svitov basically gets locked into some barracks and forced to forced to work out the remainder of his military service and does he plays I think like nine games in his 18 year old year he gets to go to the world juniors where he gets caught up in a spitting incident with Canada and then gets suspended for uh, going crazy against the Swiss just when when I was looking back at this draft I mean when you asked me to sort of do this and, and I was going over some notes and doing some back research learning about Alex I, I mean I honest to god I knew almost nothing about this backstory or the fact that he was 250 pounds during his playing career um but uh, yeah just just one of a kind man yeah no kidding and so he loses that entire developmental year which is crazy to think about comes over to Tampa Bay They play him 63 games in his rookie year, giving him nine minutes a night. He plays a bit in the AHL, and he's almost a point per game in in 11 games. But this is the Tortorella era. So if you're not bringing it every night, you're not getting any run. And Mm. by his sophomore year, basically the coaches have completely written him off, And he gets sent back down to the AHL and eventually traded to Columbus for Daryl Sador, who contributes to their cup win. So, so I guess ultimately they get something out of this pick, but when they send him down, apparently Tortorella says he can rot in the AHL forever. (laughs) Unreal, man. Yeah. I'm seeing, I've got a stat page up too, and I'm seeing 200 PIMS with Syracuse in the AHL in a single season so he's this this guy just he was big he was strong but he never really never really figured it out yeah and third overall too like it's yeah and not getting any help from the adults managing his career yeah no kidding (laughs) and i was thinking of angelo esposito the one and only right and he ends up being a first rounder. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he, he played a few years and sort of bounced around the AHL, but he, I don't think he ever played an NHL game. And this kid tried out for, for Canada's world junior team when he was 15. I believe he went to four or five team Canada world junior selection camps. Didn't make the team at 15, but he was invited to, to sort of audition for the team as a 15 year old and never played a, a single NHL game. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Part of the Marion Hosa trade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at number four, the hometown Florida Panthers, they select Stephen Weiss, who is getting comparisons to Steve Iserman and Joe Sackick. Yeah, there's, even, there's even a Steve Weisserman 
headline <laughs> in a newspaper at one point. Wild. It, it's <laughs> how times have changed, eh? And Weiss, I mean, he, he ended up having a, a pretty good career, but injuries and et cetera play, sort of took their toll. So, But again, yeah. you, you just look back at some of these drafts, and we're talking about third and fourth overall picks here. And, and Stephen Weiss had a decent NHL career. But today, if, if Stephen Weiss's career is your outcome from a fourth overall pick, teams are probably disappointed in that nowadays, I would think. Absolutely. Which... Yeah, like you said, he, he has a good run there. I'll be interested to see if he comes back up in our redraft. Mm-hmm. So at number five, the Anaheim Ducks, they take Stanislav Chistov, who is another one of those guys who gets caught up in the, uh, the, the Russian situation with, with military service. But Anaheim, they had him over during the summer before or after that draft, uh, just to, I guess he has a knee injury and he's rehabbing. So they're like, you know what, you go back to Russia. Like as, as long as you rehab that knee and you're playing somewhere and developing, we're fine with it. And he ends up having a pretty good rookie year playing 13 minutes a night on a line with Steve Thomas. And he gets 30 points in 79 games on the duck team that goes to the uh, cup final against New Jersey and he actually has he has some legitimate highlight reel plays he shows shades of Sergei Samsonov <laughs> shades of Samsonov him and Svitov uh, another thing I picked up on my research they were both on that Omsk Avangard team too like they both were so, sort of two top five picks selected out of the same program in Russia so in 2001 that that's a they, they would have been viewed as as sort of legitimate star level prospects and they would have likely come up together playing on this in this sort of same program. So good for Avangard. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think Svitov ends up being captain of that team when he, when he goes back to Russia. Mm. But apparently after that very successful rookie season, Chistov, it's, it, the season runs later than it's ever run for him in, in his career. And mm. He thinks it's going to be easy or something like that and, and doesn't really train. So then when he comes back, he's, he's not ready to play and he gets yo-yoed up and down to the AHL and it just busts his confidence and he's, he's out of the league before you know it. There's another thing eh, that's changed over the year, just on the training side of things. Like these kids, there, there's no way a kid is 250 pounds and he's allowed to, sort of stay at that weight right like they, that's just not not something that flies nowadays mm-hmm. yeah kids these days you almost aren't making it unless you, you've already started training some kind of regimen in your off seasons before you're even on the nhl radar i can't imagine what the language barrier would have been like for those guys coming over too eh? yeah it can't have have been nearly as good because I, I don't know what uh, what the situation is with with media availability and stuff like that like English language channels certainly satellite TV was was only only just becoming a thing in in the late 90s early 2000s yeah so at number six Minnesota hits a bit of a home run here with Miko Koivu who I mean, he's he's future captain. 
He's their franchise leader in games played with over a thousand and points with 709. Have we seen the last of Koivu? Oh, there's a good question. He's certainly begun to taper off in the last couple of years. I, I don't think we've seen the last of him. But, I mean, you talk about the NHL nowadays. How many 37, 38-year-olds are left? It's a, it's a small list. You can count on one hand nowadays. So um, it, the longer he keeps playing, the, the more power to him. I still think he can play. Like, he's a fine sort of complimentary player. But he's certainly not the player he was during the sort of beginning or even middle of his career. He was that, – that was a hell of a pick for the Wild, who were at the time a, a young franchise. So – yeah, they were. There was a lot of pre-draft hype for them to pick a goalie, and they end up taking a franchise cornerstone in in Koivu. Mm-hmm. At number seven, Montreal takes Mike Komisarek, who, at the time, he garners uh, some comparisons to Scott Stevens in, in terms of his uh, desire to play the body. Yeah, he was also. To my recollection, that's the early days of the National Development Program. I was actually just talking with Ryan Clark, our, our Avalanche reporter, yesterday, and he's going to do a story on kind of the origins of, of the program and basically how much of a shit show the program was for a lot of years and how he struggled to attract top talent. And nowadays, it's like if you didn't go to the National Development, if you don't go to the National Development Program as a sort of top American player, you're you're making the wrong choice and it used to be the opposite so commissaric was a a bit of a test dummy for usa hockey and i mean he had a he had a good career so ultimately it kind of worked out but seventh overall is 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 darn high nowadays for a player who was ultimately a kind of stay-at-home type right but back in those days the stay at home type with a big shot was totally. your number one weapon on the power play. hundred percent. At number eight, Columbus takes Pascal Leclerc. And I'm wondering in, in the one hit wonder series that you guys did on the athletic, did Leclerc make it onto, <laughs> onto that at all? That's a good question. I don't think he did. Um, but certainly a contender. And one of four goalies taken the first round. Imagine if we had four goalies taking the first round of any draft nowadays. I think there's three in the year that Vasilevsky and Subban go. Mm. Yeah. But that's that's the latest I can remember. Yeah. And I mean yeah. I'm looking at I'm looking at the four goalies right now. None of them worked out. Dan Blackburn, sixty-three games. Yeah, we'll, that's true. Yeah, thirty-eight games. Adam Monroe, seventeen games. Like they, none of none of those four goalies really. I mean, Leclerc stuck out for a little while, but even then, yeah, some injuries. Some injuries were a factor there. Certainly for Leclerc, he's out of hockey before the age of thirty with a wonky hip. But that 07-08 season, he gives them fifty-two games. He wins nearly half of them. He's tied for second in shutouts behind mm-hmm. only Henrik Lundqvist with nine. And he's in the top three for, for goals against average and save percentage. Yeah. It's a that was huge year. Yeah. And nine nineteen save percentage. Yeah. So at number nine, Chicago Blackhawks take Tuomo Rutu. 
And the pre-draft scouting report indicates that he plays a physical game like his brothers, but packs more skill, which is just about as on the mark a quick scouting report as I think <laughs> you'll find. Yeah, yeah, he that that's Tumbo, right? That's that's him. He's uh he's an interesting guy. He's now the this year was the assistant coach of of Finland's World Junior team and. Finland's top, their, their sort of head coach with their national junior program right now doesn't speak English, so they would send out who was their sort of go-to guy for post-game interviews, or if you had a question about any of the World Juniors or that kind of thing, he'd be their guy, and he's just quiet, sort of one-word answers kind of guy. I, I get the sense that playing on the other side of the ice with him would have been a, a sort of scary proposition. Like, he was never the biggest or the strongest guy, but He's got, even today, man, he's got this sort of quiet meanness slash seriousness to him that kind of defined his game through the through the bulk of his career, really. Yeah, a real quality NHL player, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious to see if he pops back up in our redraft. Uh, number yeah. 10, the New York Rangers, they take Dan Blackburn, and you referenced he doesn't work out. If you thought LeClaire's story of injuries was tough Uh, i'm gonna break down blackburns so right out of this draft he jumps to the nhl and plays 31 games as an 18 year old and the numbers aren't great crazy but the rangers aren't very good either and he's good enough to make the all rookie team and then training that summer he hurts his catcher shoulder lifting weights and then Once the season starts, it just gets worse. And he Mm. plays 32 games, again, bad, but the Rangers are bad. And then he he gets off-season surgery, and he loses the entire year to rehab. And and the nerve in the shoulder never recovers. So his arm atrophies to the point that he can't open up his glove hand to make the high-glove save. And he's literally got a dent in his back from where the muscle atrophied. That's insane. And quite honestly, I have never heard that story until this moment. It'd make for a hell of a, a sort of story. We're doing a lot of work back to the athletic these days to try and sort of come up with new creative sort of storytelling narrative hooks. And I would love to chat with Dan about the way that his career went. Okay, so then get this. After losing that year, Glenn Sather comes up with the idea that he can't use his glove. So why don't you wear two blockers? So they get league approval for this second blocker that has like a small webbed glove so that he can still glove low shots. I cannot believe I haven't heard this story before. And he takes a run at a comeback playing in the ECHL. He gets 12 games and then he's out of hockey before he even turns 22. That's brutal. That's brutal, man. I can't, I can't imagine. I, and I wonder too, whether, uh, given the way that science has gone, whether uh, in, in today's age, whether a, a surgery like that is, is a sort of no brainer thing to do versus back then, obviously it goes south on like, yeah. I wonder how, how medicine has changed for these athletes for a surgery like that. Yeah, I'm not certain. I, I mentioned this on the 
1998 redraft pod that I just did, we were talking about Andre Markov and how oh. after he blows out his knee a couple of times in a row, I'm writing about how he's cooked. Like I'm never going to trust this guy again. Mm. And then he comes back and he's perfectly fine. And yep. for me, that was a real sea change. And that's like 10 years after, after this uh, situation with Blackburn. So yeah, I think it comes a long way and not just in terms of what they're doing with the surgeries, but also in terms of the recovery protocols. Oh, there's no question. I have one of my best friends in life is the sort of head trainer under Matt Nichol at Steel and uh, stories I've heard. I mean, he, he, he told me there was no chance last season that Zach Hyman was going to come back in the timeline that they'd set out for Zach Hyman, right? And then suddenly Zach's back and he's scoring every single game. Like these, these guys are not, not only coming back mid-season from blown knees and hip surgeries and goaltenders coming back from hip surgeries that they never used to be able to come back from. And it used to be career ending. Jonathan Quick comes to mind as a guy who basically had his body reconstructed and then had a great NHL career. So the, yeah, it's it's completely changed. Timelines are changing yearly. It seems like again, my my buddy said with with Zach's sort of timeline that they set out for him. He said on day one, no chance Zach's going to come back and be fully healthy. And and if he does, he's going to be playing at a huge risk of injury. And obviously, Zach came back and had the best half season of his career so things are times have changed for sure it's remarkable so at number 11 the phoenix coyotes take frederick schustrom and he plays 489 career games but i don't i don't have a lot of recollection of him Mm -hmm. Uh, all i could tell you on on freddie is that he's now the the gm of of the frolanda indians so I spoke to him on the phone for a story a couple weeks ago that I did on, on Lewis Raymond. And that's what he's up to these days. He's uh, managing one of the top clubs in Europe. Okay. Well, I, I think that that goes to show kind of why some of these guys ended up being first rounders. Like they're, they're getting picked out of Europe in the first round at a time when that wasn't necessarily the, the most sought after place. And then they, they end up having careers because obviously they love the game. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And he's, he's born and raised in sort of that area. And Frolanda's, I mean, Frolanda is now this kind of Nick preserved talent. They're, uh, they're right up there with the great programs of the world. So it's a long way. And he played for them now is obviously has an ownership and management stadium as well. So yeah, he was, uh, he was, uh, from my recollection of him was just that he was kind of a fourth line face-off guy, penalty killer. Mm-hmm. So a nice little run of picks here from 12 to 14. The Nashville Predators take Dan Hamuse. The Edmonton Oilers then take Alish Hemsky. And at number 14, the Calgary Flames take Chuck Kobasu, who I'm not sure he'll make our redraft but he's a fourth liner on that cup final team for the flames and he plays 600 games and even has three 20 goal seasons, which isn't a bad career for a mid first round pick. No, it it really isn't like, certainly you have to probably lower your expectations, which I know people don't do, Mm -hmm. but you get someone who, who contributes to, to the best team that you've had in 25, 30 years, you, uh, 
you've done well for yourself. At number 15, the Carolina Hurricanes take Igor Gnaezev, and he never plays an NHL game, which is nothing new for 15th overall picks. No. No, not really. And I honestly, again, another sort of Russian player that I knew nothing about when I was looking back at this. And I, I just recall looking back at, and thinking he didn't even really make it in, in Russia's top league. And then later in the KHL, when the KHL was established midway through his career, like he never really was a prominent player in Europe. So it, it, it didn't, did not pan out. No. Uh, some other first rounders, RJ Umberger, Marcel Gotch, Colby Armstrong, Tim Gleason, Lucas Krejcik, and then some players who were picked later in this draft, Derek Roy, Craig Anderson, Mike Smith, Jason Pominville, Mike Camilleri, Patrick Sharp, Thomas Placanich, Ray Emery, Jordan Tutu, Kevin Bieksa, Christian Erhoff, Andrew Alberts. And as I'm reading that, I'm, I'm starting to think that this is the only draft that Jim Benning ever scouted for his, his defense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. So now that we've kind of broken down how it went, let's, uh, let's get into our redraft. So Scott, why don't you go ahead and, and pick number one for Atlanta? This one was tough for me. I think it's it's really only down to two players, and it's the top two picks who, who were ultimately selected. So I, I would probably go Kovalchuk just because I think at, in his prime and at his peak, as good as Jason was, Kovalchuk had more of a dynamic quality and that sort of game-breaking crack open a shift in a single moment kind of skill set. Yeah, I'm in, in full agreement with you there. Like I said, the second best goal scorer of his generation. So he only wins the Hart or the Richard Trophy the one time, but he makes the first team all-star once, second team all-star another time. So he's, he's certainly among the top 10 players in the league at, at any given point. He's got a couple of 50 goal seasons and, and a bunch of 40 goal seasons. And how about him inventing the power kill during his time in New Jersey. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, about him defect, sort of doing the reverse defection and going home for the bulk of what is, I mean, not really his prime, but certainly still would have been great years of his career. I mean, he's often two, two seasons prior, he's coming off an 83 point year. And then he's got 31 and 37 in this sort of half lockout season. Like he was in the middle of, uh, sort of continued dominance. It wasn't like he'd hit some massive wall and he decided to go home. It was, I'm unhappy with my situation and my contract. And despite the fact that I'm still one of the best players on the planet, I'm going to pack up my shit and, and sort of head back home. So uh, there, there's still a, a sort of what if element to that, that will always kind of exist, I think. Indeed, and I think in in redoing this pick, you can you could tell yourself that you're going to keep him around for for the entirety uh, of his his hockey playing life. Sure. And I, how many more years does he play 24 minutes a night for you? Right. Yeah, he could. Yeah, he could. Then he was gone for what five seasons. There's there's an, there's a scenario there where for certainly for two, maybe for three of those years, he's still your sort of most effective offensive player. 
yeah, you could argue there's 200 goals missing from his resume. Mm -hmm. So that brings me up at number two. And, and as you mentioned, there's, there's a clear one, two in this draft. So no brainer, Jason Spezza. Yeah. The, the OG exceptional player. That's right. The first player in, in OHL history to sort of have that, that status bestowed upon him. Indeed. And there are questions about him coming into this draft a little bit questions about uh, whether, whether he can really elevate his game. I think there's, there's a playoff series where he gets outplayed by Steven Weiss in, in the OHL. Mm. And I think to some extent he plays into those. And then to some extent he, he surpasses those, those questions about his game. He's got a couple of 90 point seasons, a couple of 80 point seasons, and he's very good for a very long time on some Ottawa teams that were relevant for, for the bulk of his career. For sure. And when I think of Jason, I think of, again, kind of like Ilya, this new kind of player, um, particularly on the puck control side of the game. We have the, the Evgeny Malkins of the world now who play that kind of style, but for a guy who was as big and strong and tall as he was to, to be able to control the puck down low, like he did and, and, and to be able to control the puck in traffic. I mean, the things we look for now in a player, we always talk about the small area skills and the ability to play in traffic. He had this 10 foot long stick and he could still sort of puck on a string you for, for 10 or 30 seconds in the offensive zone. So that that's really what I think his impact was during his prime. He, you could not take the puck off of him. He just always had it on his stick. And you mentioned us not necessarily appreciating some of those skills in his time. He only gets heart votes the one year. So mm. yeah, I don't, I don't think we necessarily appreciated some, some of what he could do. Yeah, for sure. And again, it, and when you talk about the set, the history of the senators and where he was, they had a couple of, of decent teams and certainly that that 06 07 team made a run for it but for the bulk of his career he was he was a little bit of a one-man show there mm -hmm. they had that crazy top line in their cup season but uh but he once those guys move on he's he's asked to do a lot of heavy lifting all right scott i'm interested to see what direction you go at number three for tampa bay <laughs> This one's tough, man. I'm, uh, I, I think there's at least five or six players you could go with here. Ultimately, I think Patrick Sharp's probably my guy. I just grew so fond of him. He was one of the players that really, in, in the sort of early days of, of my fascination with player evaluation and scouting, him and Marion Hosa were two players that I always looked to as just fascinating for the way that they changed the way that they played over their careers. Hosa in particular, I mean, Hosa was a first liner and a fourth liner at different points in his career and did them both exceptionally well. But Sharp was, was kind of a late version of that. He was in his prime, a dominant star level player. And when he was asked to play lower in the lineup later in his career, he was still an excellent sort of utility player. So I'm a real big fan of Patrick Sharp. Yeah, he's certainly an interesting case because he finds himself on those loaded Blackhawk teams. So mm -hmm. he's heavily involved in our life, but at no point is he even a top five player on his team? No, not really. He had a couple of 70-point seasons. I think he challenged 80 points once. Yeah, he's got um, a 78-pointer in there. 
Yeah, and certainly some excellent playoff. Like he was a key, key part of those playoff runs. Was consistently a sort of close to point per game player during those cup runs, and came up big when it mattered and all that. But uh, you're you're absolutely right, though. He wasn't when you look back on those teams. He was he's not one of the sort of four or five guys that you point to as part of the, the foundation of that dynasty, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I would note that. I think those Blackhawk teams were the scariest team I've ever seen when trying to come back in a game and when they would pull the goalie and have the six on five advantage, there was always this sense of inevitability to Mm. them coming back and tying the game. And Sharp was frequently out on the ice for that. So I think that certainly puts him in good standing. For sure. Yeah. He had a great career and, was a sort of a good player right to the end too. He never really hit that point in his career where it was, okay, this guy's going to be a healthy scratch on any given night, like someone like Spezza has. So it, it, he, he, wait, he called it quit at the right time, I think. Indeed. And, and he seems to be moving on to a very successful media career. Mm-hmm. Um, one possibly unanswerable question here with Sharp. If you switch him and Jason Pominville on those Chicago teams, uh, do they do they basically have the same impact? That's a darn good question. And and Pominville was one of those other players. I'm sure we'll get to him in a second. One of those other players that I considered for that that third pick. But uh, in terms of their ceiling, I think Jason probably. Uh, if you look at the best year of their career, Jason probably had the best individual year. But but again, it's close. That's that's a that's an interesting interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a sort of firm answer on it. What about you? Yeah, unanswerable. But I would like to find out because Pominville's numbers match tit for tat with, with yeah. Sharps. Arguably, yeah. even has a has a longer run of effective play. Mm. All right. So at number four for the Florida Panthers. I'm going to take their number one centerman and give them Miko Koivu. Yeah. Yeah, no, I respect that pick. He's he's right there and and certainly is is one of the last men standing of the, of this draft. So, yeah, uh, credit to him for that and and I mean he I, in the ball, in the middle of his career, he was a a sort of sick consistent 60-70 point guy. He was never a star. He was never uh, a lot like Sharp, maybe he was never going to be the the go-to guy on a team. He was asked to be for for some of those mediocre, wild teams, but uh, he was a darn good good player, basically from start to finish. Yeah, he doesn't come over until after the lockout, so he's a bit older. But mm. he's already getting Selkie votes by his second season, and he gets Selkie votes in ten different seasons, which I, I know it's a bit reputation based. But the fact that he gets him in, in his second season, I think, highlights that he, he was genuinely deserving of those. Yeah, no, no disagreement there. Okay, so number five, picking from your, from your glut of, I, I guess, uh, bronze medal contenders. <laughs> and, I, and I think we touched on him. I think I got to go back to, to Pominville here. Just when I look back at those Sabres teams, certainly he, he stayed he stayed as a sort of excellent player once he was moved on and, and shipped off to the Wild. I believe he had a 60-point season with the Wild. But when I think back of the sort of mid-2000 Sabres teams and you talk about Drury and you talk about 
Briere and, and some of the players that wheeled through there, Pommenville was kind of the one constant. Some, so there were some good players that came and went, but he was, he was their one sort of go-to. You can slot him on either sort of position on the first line. I mean, he played sort of up and down that lineup and, and he was just a consistent, I mean, he was a right winger, but he played on the left wing for a couple of years there. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe 80 point season in, with Buffalo. So he was, he was a, a good player on some decent teams. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a 30 goal, 80 point season in the mix there. And you referenced his, his 60 point season with the wild, his, his first year there. And that year's another 30 goal year for him where he's their leading scorer and they even went around in the playoffs. And he, he stuck around too. I mean, he, he didn't play this season, but we're only a year out of, of him calling it quits. So he, he played for, uh, did he break a thousand games? I feel like he broke a thousand games. You may be right on that. I'm not certain, but I'm sure he came damn close. I, I would bet that he did. No, I was just going to say 1,060 here, so. Yeah, that's a damn fine career. Should take him in the top five. Um, Pominville was actually, when I was doing the research for this, he was noted as a draft riser, and I think he ends up going 63rd at the start of the third round to Buffalo. And is, you know, draft risers are are something that I kind of keep my eye out on these days because it, it kind of highlights someone who's coming to the best of their game closer to, to when the draft is happening. Is, is that something you keep your eye on as well? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly it's um, when you talk about sort of player evaluation today, age is a huge factor for me as well. I just think that there's not enough attention paid to the kind of context around a player and, there's still a little bit too much attention paid to sort of the exact outcomes of their draft eligible season and that kind of a thing. So, so I mean, I, I pay attention to everything from how old a player is. There are some kids you look no further than this draft. I mean, Alexi Lafreniere and Quentin Buffield are a full year apart and that makes a big difference in the trajectory of a kid, but the sort of late risers and, and players peaking at the right times and, and, the, their playoff performances and their U18 performances, those, those sort of late year events still do matter. Um, I, I think we've, we've watched so much of these kids by the time that they're ready for the draft nowadays. And that part of it has changed that it's a little bit more, I don't want to say predictable because the NHL draft is anything but predictable, but the, there, there's less emphasis placed nowadays, I think on the, those sort of late year surges, but it's still certainly certainly a factor in, in evaluating a player and it's something that we're going to lose this year due to coronavirus and, and all of the cancellations and the role that that's having on the way that scouts do their jobs and uh, the lack of viewings and playoff viewings and the Memorial Cup and the Frozen Four and U18s and all of that's been lost so this year it'll be interesting to see how this draft plays out 10 years from now when we're doing these kinds of redrafts and whether more mistakes are made because teams didn't have the, the time to do that kind of due diligence, or maybe it backs them out of making some mistake that they would have made by going all in on kid X who had a nice performance at the U18 worlds. Yeah, that's interesting. It'll be, it'll be an excellent case study in modern scouting. Mm-hmm. If only we could get NHL teams to release their draft lists. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, their, their draft lists will speak for themselves on draft day, so we'll always have that to look back on. 
Right. So that brings me up at number six and I've already taken the wild guy. So I'm going to take Christian Erhoff for them. He's, he's kind Ooh. of in a glut of a few really strong defensemen who you could take. And I just like his peak years, but what do you think about that pick Scott? I like that pick. I had, I built a little bit of a board, a loose board for myself here. And I had him a little bit sort of closer to 10, but you can, I can respect that pick. There's, there's four or five pretty good sort of solid defensemen that come out of this draft uh, players that made a, an entire career out of, uh, out of it. And, and he's right in that mix. None of the sort of top D in this draft that will probably end up going in the, in our 30 picks here in the redraft were were star level players, but Erhoff, again, big part of some pretty good teams and nearly made a, a run at a Stanley Cup and uh, had a nice career for himself, for sure. Yeah, you mentioned that none of the defensemen really hit star level. I think Erhoff is as close as anyone comes yeah. in this draft to doing it. He's he's in the top 10 of Norris voting, his, his two monster seasons in Vancouver, and then he leaves after their after their run to the finals and he signs that mega deal in Buffalo and yeah. that team's not very good, but he's still a foundational piece for a few years there before getting bought out. So he has about a six year peak extending from his last years in San Jose to those first couple of years in Buffalo where he's in the argument for a top 20 defenseman. So on a lot of teams, he, he was a legitimate number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and maybe I don't give him enough respect in terms of sort of qualifying him as a star that way too, because you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was a, a point in his career where he's logging 24, 25 minutes a night and he's on one of the best teams in the league, so. Okay, who do you have at number seven for the Montreal Canadiens? And is it Mike Commissarek? It is not Mike Commissarek. This is when things I think start to start to really get interesting. If if they were looking defensemen, I'll I'll stick I'll stick with their position and go with Merrick Zidlicky, who I think gives gives Erhoff at least during his peak a run for his money. I mean, there was four or five years in Zidlicky's career where he was playing huge minutes. He was a sort of forty-five point guy, and he didn't have the of of an Erhoff, but. Uh, he had an excellent, excellent career and was a, a, a dominant player for much of it. Yeah, he doesn't even arrive until he's 26. So you got to ask yourself, what years of good play did we miss out on? But he still has a 12-year career anyway. And he gets Norse votes, I think, in his first two years, of which one is a 50-point season. And he gets 10 goals in four different seasons and he, he's arguably the number one defenseman on that devil's team that makes it to the final in 2012 and the interesting part about that for me is that when people think about him they probably think nashville maybe minnesota but he i mean he, his the swan of his career was with the devils and he had another 40 point career in, into his 30s was like you said a, a sort of go-to player for them during a Stanley Cup run. So he, he had a, a really, really nice career, especially for the fact that he came over later than you might have expected for a sort of fenceman of his caliber. Um, I believe he was a super late round pick as well. Like he was a sixth or seventh round pick. So this is, this is probably one of the biggest risers on the board. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he goes crazy late. 
and I think he's a Rangers pick, and he never plays for them. Mm -hmm. So that brings me up at number eight, picking for the Columbus Blue Jackets, and they sure would like a franchise goaltender, but unfortunately (laughs) there may not be any of those in this draft. So I am going to take Dan Hamius. Mm. That's that's a good pick. He's, I mean, again, he's he's right in that mix of as the sort of for five, um, and and we have that Jim Benning Vancouver Canucks tint to this. He's uh, he he's right there. He never maybe has the the offensive prowess that Zidlicki or Erhoff had during the middle of their careers, but he just keeps logging minutes. Yeah, you said it. He doesn't have the offense, but the fact that at his peak, he still gets Norris votes in three different seasons without the yeah. offense, it, it yeah. really tells you about uh, what good work that he put in. He, he's essentially the the model defensive defenseman, and his work on those two President Trophy winners in Vancouver is, is some of the best you'll see paired up with another guy from this draft. He's yeah. There's there's no fault in that pick. He he had more longevity than just about anyone else, and and made a good run of it. Yeah. So at number nine, you're up for the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm almost tempted just to take Rutu because they did, and it it's a defensible pick. Um, but I I still think there are a, a few other forwards that went on to have have better careers. Ah, this is this one's tough. I think I probably go. Either Mike Camilleri or Alish Hemsky, I would probably lean Camilleri just because at his sort of peak, he challenged for 40 goals, challenged for point per game. He was an excellent playoff performer throughout his career. That really became a hallmark of, of his career. I think Camilleri is probably the guy for me there. Yeah, if you're picking between Hemsky and Camilleri, they both have injury issues. But Hemsky's is crazy. Like Hemsky has basically a six-year run uh, where he's a 70-point guy, except yep. he misses a third of the games. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he had a couple of seasons where he played like 30-something games and, and was a point-per-game guy. And you just wonder, man, he could have, health-permitting, had an excellent, excellent career. Absolutely. But, you know, on Camilleri, He's number three in overall goal scoring from this draft class. He's got a couple of 30-goal seasons. He's got a couple of 80-point seasons, and you mentioned it. His work on those for a couple of years there in Montreal in the playoffs, he's an absolute assassin. 16 goals in 29 points (laughs) uh, in 26 games, including a conference finals appearance in two years. And really not as as a sort of young in his prime player, like it was, his age had started to sort of catch up with him a little bit and he was still a go-to guy. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's another one just because of the injuries. Could he have done even more than what we saw from him, but he gets bounced around as a legitimate star guy a little bit in this league. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you have at 10? At 10, I'm picking for, the New York Rangers and they ended up going goalie, not realizing that they picked their franchise goalie in the seventh round or the year before. And they're, (laughs) they're, they're so oblivious, maybe the wrong term, but 
they don't realize that Lundqvist is, is going to be the guy so much so that in 04, they take Al Montoya with the number six pick as well. <laughs> so they, they desperately they went want back to some the- goaltending. Yeah. And I'm not going to go goaltending for them. I'm going to take Kevin Bieksa. We're, we're on the, you're on the, the D train here with the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, those guys are all really, really good. If you can get someone who can play 22-plus minutes yeah. on the back end for you for a decade and isn't hurting you, you're, you're doing quite well for yourself. Yeah, oh, I, I don't disagree. And he's like he's the model defenseman for back when we're doing this draft, but then as we advance into the 2010s and he's playing on those Canucks teams where they're asking defensemen to, to jump up into the play, like he's, he's also capable of doing some of that, which is, is really interesting. Yeah, and a testament to how he had the longevity that he did. I mean, he's up in, in terms of game played up, up near the top of this draft. And yeah, you, you're absolutely right. He, he molded himself sort of later in his career, not even later, sort of through the mid and, and into the later part of his career for sure to change his style a little. Mm-hmm. So at number 11, the Phoenix Coyotes, who do you got, Scott? I feel like you got to go forward here just because, I mean, the Phoenix Coyotes have basically needed good forwards for the entire existence of their organization. And that probably brings me back to Hemsky. I mean, I, I would maybe consider Derek Roy here. Derek Roy is a guy who, again, with, with Jason Pominville, topped 80 points once and was, a, was an excellent player. But I, I still think I lean in terms of the true prime of her and, uh, maybe discounting injuries a little bit here. I still think Eileen Hemschke, he was just one of those players who I loved watching, sort of admired the way that he played. He played a, a very much a finesse game and just just made things happen when he was on the ice. He just he was a creator. So uh, that's the kind of guy that I think the, the Coyotes have always lacked. I mean, when as good as Shane Doan is, when Shane Doan's your, your all-time forward, your organ, it, it speaks to this sort of lack of talent that's been there over the years. And I think Hemschke would have made a lot of sense for them. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here on Hemschke. Like, he was one of my favorite players coming up uh, as an Oilers fan. And the part of his game that probably resulted in him getting so many injuries was the fact that as a smaller player, he still played a gritty game. He wasn't going to back down, and he was going to play a physical style, which was required pre-lockout, and certainly – he, he still did it even after the lockout and it probably resulted in him not being able to stay in the lineup, but it sure did make him damn fun to watch. Yeah. Agreed. So at number 12, I'm picking for the Nashville predators and there's a couple of goalies in here that are kind of just, just lingering a little bit too much for me. Yeah. So before they start whining at us, I'm going to take one of them. I'm going to take Craig Anderson. Yeah, he, he's, the, he's the number one goalie for me. I mean, you can look at Mike Smith. Ray certainly had a run for a little while. But Craig's longevity and his consistency, the early part of his career, and then it, sort of into the late part, he bounced around a lot. I mean, he's infamous for that one good season, one bad season kind of career arc. But the, the sum of the parts at the end of all those good and bad seasons is, is a pretty good career. Absolutely. He is – so he actually gets drafted 
in 99 by the Flames, but doesn't sign. So he ends up back in this draft and Chicago takes him in the third round. But it doesn't take, like, it, it's not until well after the lockout that he really shows up in Florida, of all places. And then, yeah, you mentioned it, this good season, bad season. He has that monster year for the Avalanche where he mm-hmm. plays 71 games and then just he's gassed in playoff games. time. And he gets heart votes and Vesna votes that year. Yeah. The lockout year, they've got the three-headed monster in net with Robin Lehner and Ben Bishop. But he leads the way and, again, gets heart votes and Vesna votes. He leads the league with a 169 goals against average and a 941 save percentage. <laughs> the lockout year, so he, 24 games, but it's it's still crazy. And, and he gets a not very good Sens team to, to the second round. And then he has that Masterton year where they end up going to the conference final and darn near knock off the defending champs. And the bulk of that really on the back, of, I mean, certainly on the back of Eric Carlson above all else, but he, he, he was great sort of down the stretch and into that run. So. Yeah. And he's still going like he could continue on playing. He's one of the few guys left from this draft class. Yeah, our Haley Salvi and our, our Ottawa writer just did an interesting piece on kind of could this be the end? There's there's a lot of guys who coronavirus may have, have ended their career. And if the Suns don't sign him or if he doesn't get a one-year deal somewhere else, this this could be it for him as well, right? Indeed. And with Nashville being kind of just a, a haven for goaltending, you do wonder if he would have been drafted there would he have had an even crazier, awesome career? Right. Right. Okay. So at number 13, the Edmonton Oilers. Oh, this one's tough. They actually took Kempsey and that was probably a darn good pick at the time. Oh, I don't know. I, I've gone, I've gone forward basically down the line here, except for Zidlicky. Um, and I'm tempted to go forward again. I just really like Derek Roy. So I think Derek's probably my guy there. Uh, again, I mean, we were talking about these small kind of feisty guys who just made a career out of working hard and sort of playing quote unquote dirty areas and scoring goals and making plays and never really ascended to that sort of franchise player level, but we're certainly the best player or one of the best players on some decent teams. So I, I think Roy can't stay on the board for too, too long. No, you a good case for Derek Roy here. He has a five-year run in Buffalo where he's he's essentially a 70-point guy. And then I think he's he's got like 35 points in 35 games in the 2011 season. And then that gets cut short by injury. And he's never the same again. Mm-hmm. But a, a heck of a five-year run. Yeah, and th- those teams were fun to watch. So I'll, I'll give them some nostalgia for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Those, those Sabres teams, like he's, he's on those teams that make it to the conference finals. I think he's on at least one of them and then they kind of start shedding talent, but they're still effective for, for much of Ryan Miller's prime there. Yeah. So at number 14, picking for the Calgary Flames, I'm torn between a couple of guys here. 
And I think I'm going for the longevity and the turtlenecks of Tomek's Pocana. <laughs> that is a great pick. He, again, he's, he's one of those guys who maybe doesn't ever get to the, the, the level of some of the players that were likely to, there's still two or three more players on, on my list here who I think were maybe more talented at the top of their career than Thomas. Thomas was still a 60 point guy was one of those players who played high in his line, high in the lineup for part of his career and then built himself into kind of the perfect fourth line center in the back half of his, of his career. So respect to him for that. Yeah. He's basically forced to be the number one center for a decade in Montreal and he ends up having a 70 point season, but those teams were basically all about shot blocking and good goaltending and, and playing rope-a-dope and <laughs> yeah. He ends up getting Selkie votes in seven different years, which is certainly a testament to his two-way ability and the reputation that he developed on some of those feisty Habs teams that punched well above their weight. Yeah, he was an impressive player. So rounding out our picks here, number 15, Carolina Hurricanes. Scott, you can't do worse than they did. No, you really can't. Um and I don't know, there's still a lot of guys I like left here. I might lean just just kind of on the same wavelength with, with Placanitz, but UC Okanen, I mean, talk about a guy who was a 50 to 60 point player for the bulk of the middle of his career, but never really ascended to that sort of next echelon. But when I think about him, I mean, I still watch him play. He plays on Carpat these days, and I watch that team a lot in terms of scouting and evaluating the prospects there. And he's, he's still a very good player even today on one of the top teams in Europe and was a darn good player for most of his career. And I believe when he finished things out in Vancouver, he had something like, it was like 10 points in, in 13 games or 10 points in 15 games. So basically right down to his last NHL breath, he was still having at least some kind of an, an impact at both ends of the ice. And again, another player that for me just, just had that two-way skill. Is he still using that same shootout move? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't think he's one of their go-to guys in the, in the shootout in Liga there, but that is an excellent question. Oh, that's a shame. Um, so, some shout-outs to Mike Smith, who, I mean, he, he really only has that one awesome season where he carries the Coyotes to the conference finals. But other than that, like, it's, it's, it's not amazing. But that season, he's a top 10 in the cap era for goals saved above average with 34. Yeah. And he's one of those players who, for me, has always kind of made a fan of, of that sort of old school sort of HL community. He's, he just sticks around. He's never really been that good, but he just keeps, keeps sticking around. He's played a lot of games in his career. He's one of those goalies who has just kind of found a way to getting contracts and keep, getting into games. And I think part of that is, is just the likability. Um, he was a contender for some of the greatest team Canada's we've ever seen at the Olympics. Like he, he had a couple of years where he was in the conversation as one of the better goalies, but again, for the, for most of his career, he just hasn't been very good for me. I don't think. Yeah. He, he bounces around way too much. And, but one of the more entertaining goaltenders of, of the era is there sure. anyone you wanted to shout out here, Scott? I mean, there are a few guys that I'm, I'm partial to just because of injuries. Um, I, I've dealt with a lot of concussions, and when I was looking through this, there were a few guys who are just 
just really jumped out to me. Ryan Clough was certainly one of them who was an excellent player, in my opinion, for basically his entire career until head trauma got the better of him. Colby Armstrong's another guy where concussions kind of got the better of him, and he was a great sort of second, third-line player for most of his career and a physical presence. And then nostalgia-wise, um, I was almost tempted, almost tempted to take Kyle Wellwood. Okay. So I, I was going to ask you, is there someone from this draft class that even knowing how everything played out and their careers are over that in retrospect, you still have an irrational belief in? Well, Ray Emery are probably the two guys for me. I, I thought Ray for a stretch of his career was just a, like a fabulous goalie, athletic, aggressive in his net, kind of in his years in terms of his style of play. So Ray Emery is certainly one of those guys that comes to mind. And then Wellwood's another. I just, he couldn't skate, he couldn't move, but he could beat the same guy four or five times with his hands and he still wouldn't have actually made any progress in terms of getting to the net. So there was a fascination for me with his skill set that he should have been way better than he actually was. Yeah, Wellwood was was my answer for that one as well. And I'm glad you gave the scouting report instead of I, because that was well said. Looking back in retrospect, who do you think won this draft? Oof. I mean, there weren't really any any home runs for me. Other, I mean, the two top picks certainly were. But in terms of value, you've got to look at Miko Koivu to Minnesota at sixth overall. Like, that's that's just a huge, huge, huge for them and, and a, a sort of significant moment in the history of, of what has otherwise been a, a pretty mediocre franchise. So I think that's, that's a big one for me. Patrick Sharp going 95th, that, that was a note that I had down here, is, is crazy in hindsight as well. So Philadelphia did well there, but I think Minnesota, I mean, you got to give them credit for, especially considering some of the landmines that were taken around him like you immediately after Koivu you've got Commissaric and Leclerc and, and that's just a completely different look if they go that kind of a direction right yeah that's a, that's an interesting take I had Ottawa down as a winner because certainly yeah for you sure know, they they unload Yashin who right or wrong was becoming a pariah there and they land Spezza in the draft they also draft Emery and Schubert who contribute to their their cup finalist team and then with their own pick, they took Tim Gleason, who they can't get him signed, but he ends up having a real good career. And yep. they parlay him into Brian Smolinski at the 03 deadline. And that's a team that goes to the conference finals. Yeah. No, that's a, <laughs> that's a darn good draft from top to bottom. And Tim's a player who, in particular, I mean, I didn't have him on my list of the 20 or 30 guys that I wanted to sort of consider for this redraft that we did. But Tim's a player who probably isn't far behind that kind of a list and became a pretty steady stay-at-home defenseman who at one point in his career played a lot of minutes, probably too many minutes for a player who wasn't that gifted offensively. But he became a guy that a lot of coaches turned to. So that says something at the very least. Mm-hmm. And, and they also drafted Brooks Lake, who they trade him into a regrettable rental of Peter Bondra in 04, but one more feather in the cap of, of their draft class. Yeah, anytime you, you end up with four guys from draft, you, you've done well for sure. Well, that, that's great, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing this redraft. I had a heck of a lot of fun. 
Do you want to plug some stuff? What do you guys have going on over at The Athletic these days? There a lot of fun, sort of quirky content. Um, we're still trying to do the big sort of long form feature storytelling hooks. And uh, there's a lot of writers working on some pretty cool sort of bigger, big picture stories, but they, they've also asked us to kind of pivot a little bit. And we're doing a lot of sort of look back things a lot like this. And it's been a lot of fun. The content has certainly been different and, and we all wish it were playoffs right now. And we'd be writing about actual hockey games being played, but we're still trying to make the most of it. And then personally on, on my side of things, we've got a lot of draft coverage coming. I, I'm just in the process of finally finishing my final top 100, which will come out in May as part of a sort of five day package that I release every year. And that's top of mind for me right now is just watching back a lot of tape, making sure I've got sort of proper evaluations of all the guys I need to be cognizant of. And then sort of putting the fine, fine touches on, on the end of my list. It's been, it's been pretty, pretty interesting because I'm just, I'm used to being in the rink a lot more than I have been in the last couple of months. And this is normally a big time for me to, to kind of ramp up my, my sort of end of year final viewings on some of the players that I'm still curious about and, and not having that opportunity this year has just completely changed how I do my job in terms of really hunkering down and, and reviewing video. So it, the list, it'll be interesting. Again, I, I touched on it earlier, but I'll be intrigued just from, from my own personal list five, 10 years from now to look back on this draft and see how I did relative to some previous drafts because it's, it's unique time for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your final list, Scott, and certainly working as a prospect guy. It, it never really ends for you, it, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hear that, man. Everybody takes their – all the NHL writers at The Athletic take their weeks off in the summer, and I'm at Traverse City prospect tournaments and World Junior Summer Showcases and Holinka and all, all of that stuff, that, all that fun stuff. So it's, uh, it, it, the summer is never really a downtime. Yeah. Last one for you here. What are you missing most about being in the rink? I mean, in the context of the here and now, U18s is, is a lot of fun. I was really looking forward to it. Uh, April is a fun month just because you have Frozen 4 and U18s that happen basically back to back. And they were happening almost in the same location this year. Frozen 4 was planned for Detroit and then U18s weren't, weren't far away. And in Plymouth, Michigan. So I was, I was going to be doing those in back-to-back weeks in April, and that was going to be a real highlight of my year. So um, just being there and, and the U18s in particular, the Frozen Four is fun, but the Frozen Four, I think people have this misconception of, of, of college hockey. And the thing with the Frozen Four for me is that it's normally not the teams with all of the NHL talent. The Frozen Four is normally not actually a great place to evaluate top prospects because the teams that make it there – tend to be teams that are full of 23 and 24 year old players and don't actually have those sort of big names. Um, so that, that part of the frozen four would have been a lot of fun, just maybe evaluating some of the older kids and, and some of the players who don't have NHL deals to see whether there's anything there. But the U 18s is a completely different ball game because you are going to have Tim Stutzla and Marco Rossi and Alexander Holtz and Quentin Byfield all on the same all in the same small town in Michigan. And it was going to be a lot of fun to see how that played out. So I'm a little bummed personally to have missed out on that. Yeah, it's a real shame. And we'll see when we're able to get back to all of this, but, but Scott, thank you again for coming on the pod. You've been more than generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. This is a a fun exercise. The the drafts I've done have, 
of this kind have, have been more recent. So this was a trip down memory lane. I had a lot of fun. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of our show. Huge shout out to Scott Wheeler for coming on the pod and sharing with us his keen eye. Make sure you head over to The Athletic to check out his latest prospect work. As he teased, his top 100 is on the way and is a must-read to get you prepared for the upcoming NHL entry draft. I don't want to make this like an advertisement. I'm not getting paid for this by The Athletic, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I have no regrets about my subscription to their site. I was really skeptical about their model at first, but at a certain point, they just landed too many of the writers that I love to read that I had to jump on board. And I include Scott among those writers. So again, thank you to him for coming on the show. And before you go, if you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe Give us a review and come back for more.